Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we get to hear from a leading investor who has been pursuing a mission very similar to SOF's, Chris Varelis. Chris has had an illustrious career in investment banking. Responsible for some of the largest financing deals over the last several decades, Chris was recognized as one of the 100 most important dealmakers by the New York Times. Today, he is the co-founder of Riverwood Capital Partners, a leading private equity firm that invests in high-growth technology businesses with over $3 billion in capital commitments. Chris is a board member at numerous portfolio companies and also on the board of the Aspen Institute, an organization building diverse and creative thought leaders who will address the world's most complex issues, where he co-founded the Finance Leaders Fellowship. Prior to his work with Riverwood Capital and the Aspen Institute, Chris worked at Citi as the global head of technology, media, and telecom investment banking, head of Citi's national investment bank, and as a member of Citi's global operating committee. We discussed many topics, including his career story, deal-making, his latest book, the socio-political challenges in finance, the macroeconomic environment, and how we can create future finance leaders who will tackle the world's most pressing problems. Chris gave us some critical insights, and we cannot wait for you to hear them. So without further delay, we bring you Chris Varelis. Chris Varelis, sir, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. I have been eagerly awaiting the day for our first, hopefully, of many interviews on this podcast. Chris, I want to dive right in. You have served in a multitude of roles throughout your career, and you've had a uniquely impactful career, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many people who have written about you in publications, many of your, your peers and colleagues. Can you start off by sharing your story and your career journey for our audience? Yes, started off very innocuous and straightforward. I was a liberal arts major, went into commercial banking because I thought that would be a good experience and get me into a good business school. So I started off commercial banking with the of A and loaning money to diamond dealers, which was quite the experience. And then I went to business school. And then from there, from Wharton, I did a 20-year stint on Wall Street and did everything from the bond floor, trading high-yield bonds, to ending up pretty much running investment banking for Citigroup. So I like to join the firm I joined, Solomon Brothers, and the firm I left, Citi. I never changed firms, but they were pretty much the exact opposite firm you could imagine. But it was a great experience for me. I went from a very, what some people would say, Darwinistic experience at Solomon to a very large institutional firm such as Citi. And so that was you know, a great journey for me. I did everything you know, along the way that included M&A, strategy, ran the tech group, ran TMT, ran everything from LATAM to the financial buyers group. So I had a, quite a diverse experience. And then I left there right before the Great Recession to start a private equity firm called Riverwood Capital. We invest in growth technology. We're now in fund four, having invested billions of dollars successfully into growth tech. My friends try to tease me, say I'm going for the EGOT of financial services, trying to do every aspect of finance as hopefully successfully. 
So I still got to do the, I think I still got to figure out how to do the Grammy equivalent, whatever that is, but I'm working on it. Well, I have no doubt that you'll figure out and achieve the Grammy equivalent. I would argue that you've already been there, but but maybe (laughs) in my relative inexperience, I have something to learn here. NYT called you a rainmaker in the technology sector during your Mm -hmm. career. You have been widely heralded as one of the best deal makers in Wall Street for many, many years. And I would love it if we can dive right in there. What key pieces of advice would you offer to those listening for becoming an expert deal maker? Why do you think people called you the rainmaker? Yeah, I'd love to tell the story for there were 10 years where I worked on pretty much every hostile takeover defense assignment that happened in the TMT space. And I would always get this call, some CEO was facing a kind of bear hug letter or something that said, was facing probably one of the most critical moments in their firm and their probably their career. And they call me and say, I've asked around and I hear, you know, you're the guy and consider hiring you. So I get on the next flight, fly to wherever they are. And I'd meet with them and they would say something to the equivalent, some were as direct, but some were not. They would basically say like, wow, you're so not the guy. And I'd be like, okay, you know, (laughs) what does that mean to you? Like, what do you think the guy is? And to them, they're about to go into this fierce fight because the hostile takeover and they're about to go into fierce fight. And they, they want somebody, I think, who is like, in their mind, sort of an investment banking, central casting, somebody that can go into a knife fight, basically, and win. And then I come in and I'm talking about relationships, reaching consensus, understanding objectives, how to maneuver, and whatever. And they would often reluctantly hire me for a couple of reasons. One, they didn't have time to actually interview too many people because they needed literally 40, had 48 hours to respond to an approach. And the other, they just had to trust others who said, you're the person. At the end, they would say, wow, that was really not what I expected, but you are, sorry, humbly I'll say, you are the guy, right? Like, you know, you did a a great job. And when I dissect it, I tell that story because the thing about being a deal maker is there's many different kinds of deals and there's many different kinds of approaches to deals. And the first thing I say is pick the approach that's consistent with your strengths and who you are. So I'm not the guy if your job is to go in for one week and just basically beat the other side up over price. Like I'm not that deal maker and you shouldn't hire me for that. I I might do a good job, but that's not my specialty. But if the situation has many different pieces and parties and as a result, you need to have some EQ to understand the connectivity and what the priorities are, and then to build, figure out where the group should go, and then build a consensus around it, that seemed consistent with my skill set. And so I picked those situations which were most in line with the challenge of the deal itself. And that may seem very straightforward, but it it always amazed me on Wall Street, particularly when I worked in M&A, how so many advisors tried to force deals They either tried to force deals that really the world didn't want, or they tried to pursue strategies that weren't consistent with their own skill set. And so as a result, they got twisted around their knickers in multiple ways. I could go so many different places with that, but I guess I'll I'll pick those few. Sure. Well, what I'm hearing is first and foremost, there are different types of deals. There are different objectives that 
stakeholders have entering deals and different types of deals with different objectives require different skill sets. And it sounds like the skill set that you brought that made you quote the guy that surprised everyone, the surprising guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I almost want to make an addendum there. What made you the surprisingly the guy and consistently the guy was your ability to come in, utilize empathy to understand needs, objectives, nuances, and intricacies of each individual stakeholder and the relationships at play. During every one of our dinners that we've had, our sort of mentorship dinners that we do, and even our calls, you always have brought up the importance of relationships in business and finance. Can you talk about how important relationships were throughout your career and how important relationships have been in the deals that you've done? Yeah, the relationships are key because when you think about it, when you're doing a deal, the person hiring you or you're advising or wherever, it doesn't even have to be an M&A situation. It could be any aspect related to a deal. They're exposing themselves in ways they never really do anywhere else in their life, maybe even in their personal life. So here you are an executive and you're faced with this critical inflection point in the company's history, whether it's a strategy situation, an acquisition, a sale, a financing, whatever it may be. And to most effectively pull that off, you're going to have to know things which people typically do not share. You're going to have to know what's their personal objective. Do they want to be the CEO of the combined company? Do they want to exit? They're sharing personal objectives that may or may not be consistent with the companies. And so for you to bring in or for you to hire someone, there has to be a trust element in there as well as a history of, okay, this person can figure this all out and get it done. And who are you going to hire in those situations? You're going to hire somebody that you have a relationship with. You might hire the brand because you're worried about the tactical, but the emotional element of a deal cannot be underestimated. And that relationship is going to either drive you to be hired in most situations that require something beyond just, okay, here's the playbook for winning. It's so interesting that you bring up the importance of being able to read people. Emotional intelligence, you know, EQ is something that I spend a lot of time talking to our students about. Um, I think people, when they hear the term emotional intelligence, they immediately just think social skills. Mm-hmm. And if you're suggesting someone cultivate emotional intelligence, I think they oftentimes misunderstand that as you telling them that they're awkward, right? That mm-hmm. they need to learn how to be socially adept. Within emotional intelligence, are these four, and sometimes in some models, five quadrants. Self-awareness, self-management, others' awareness, others' management, the sort of the two-by-two. And I talk to our students all the time about the importance of cultivating self-awareness so that by understanding our own emotions and ourselves, that actually sort of makes us more literate with the emotions of others. And we can increase our ability to read between the lines with people, which makes us effective in deals as a leader. And a lot of them have this sense or this belief that emotional intelligence is fixed right? Either you have it or you don't. For you, do you feel like you were just always very gifted interpersonally? Or was that something you cultivated over time? Or maybe you were gifted and then you just cultivated that into what has become a superpower that made you the guy. Sort of what was your journey like with your own ability to be able to read people, pick up what they're saying, 
and manage all the different stakeholders and interests to a shared outcome? Yeah, it's a great question. For me, the journey is when I deconstruct it, it's pretty straightforward. You know, I was given the gift by my parents of self esteem. So I wasn't always thinking about, you know, anxiety about my place and where I was and do people like me and whatever. So I could spend my, rather than spending my energy inside my own head, I could spend my energy sort of taking in information around my environment and then combine that with an ability to, or desire to learn and take in as much data as whatever, which I believe are pretty low ego. I was always seeking other people's input. And then over time, it sort of dawned on me, oh, wow, like, I guess I can read the situation and the environment to get things done. It's almost like one of the great moments in every superhero movie is the Genesis story when the superhero realizes they have this power, right? It's like, oh, wow, I have this power. I can, you know, light things on fire with my eyes. You know, wow, that's pretty cool, right? So, so it's also, it's true of us as well as people, right? It's like, oh, what is our skill and what is our superpower? And for me, I'd be like, well, we should do this and this because so-and-so is with them. People are like, what do you mean? I go, well, didn't you see? Like, they clearly just told us what they want. And people are like, no, they didn't. Like, well, yes, they did. I tell you, they just told us what they want. And then so it was like, all right, so I guess I can read people's issues and desires. And so then I was like, all right, well, I might as well do things, do deals that use that strength. And then from there, it just grew and built. And to this day, I'm still amazed that we'll go into meetings and there'll be plenty of the meeting I don't understand at all. Because there's people in the meeting with 50 IQ points on me. But then I still come out of the meeting and say, well, this is the way we should proceed because people are like, I didn't see that. And I'm like, all right, that's why you need a team, usually in almost everything in life. I love that you identified your superpower and were able to not take a strength and turn it into a superpower. It sounds like by utilizing it, by building a career, making choices around that strength of yours that enabled you to utilize it and, and you know deploy it to its, its highest, most productive use. I think one of your superpowers also is writing. And I think this is a perfect segue into a conversation about your book. Mm-hmm. You wrote a best-selling book, How Money Became Dangerous, The Inside Story of Our Turbulent Relationship with Modern Finance, which is published by HarperCollins in 2019. This book was recommended to me. I read this book and was absolutely floored by it. And of course, when we had our first dinner, I had so many questions about your story and so many points in the book. Can you share with our listeners the high-level message of the book? Tell them what it's all about. Yeah, I feel like the finance industry is the most important part of our life for the world of money. is the most important part of our life that we know so little about. You think about how much training we get in so many areas, except we don't really know a lot about the world of money. Even people in finance sort of have a narrow perspective. And as I see it over the last 30 years, the world of finance has become more complex, bigger scale, but with less guardrails around it. And what the book is about is how the guardrails have been stripped away. The removal of character, the removal of accountability, the removal of time. And and basically each chapter is about removing one of these guardrails and talking about how we have become more exposed to a complex 
financial system beyond the ability of any one person to understand. And so what I tried to do with stories, no one wants to read a textbook, explain how those complexities have been increasing while the guardrails have been stripped away. And that's the purpose of this book. So each chapter is a loss, is a loss of a guardrail and an increase in complexity. And I have to say that I think the approach you took to writing it is novel and very interesting, in my opinion. A story showing the loss of a guardrail with an increase in complexity and the ramifications of that. And it's interesting you say that because I felt like I personally learned so much reading the book, but never felt like I was reading a textbook. It felt like I was just reading story after story after story, incredibly interesting, detailed stories that were just fascinating and really exciting. Like I was hooked when I was reading this book. It's become one of my favorite books to recommend to anyone wanting to learn how to make an impact in finance. One of the books I recommend to our students most often now. And one of the threats that you mentioned is is the complexity of the financial system. Like you just talked about, it's so complex and it's moved past the understanding not only of the average citizen, but even of many players in the financial system itself. What kind of course do you think we need to take or courses, obviously, do you think we need to take to create a healthy economic system? And what can anyone here listening do to contribute to that? Like, what can we do to create a healthy system in the face of this complexity? Yeah, that would require, I think that's part of the mission of Scholars of Finance, right? I think that would require a whole program to actually answer that question. So I would say just, I almost can discuss only the first step in that journey, because that is my journey. That's your journey. That's our journey. So, you know, the first step is to basically ask the question, go outside of your vertical. Because what we have happening right now is we've become so the division of labor and finance has become so defined that we have everyone working and mastering their expertise, but there's no sort of overarching oversight or consensus or anyone assessing the actions of the many. So as Nietzsche said, the pursuit of a system requires the loss of integrity. And I don't mean just integrity of character. I mean, integrity of how the system works, right? The system integrity. And so first thing you have to ask is, okay, I got to step outside my narrow vertical and understand how it connects and where it fits into the whole financial system. And what does that mean? And where is it going? Not just taking comfort in, well, if I do a great job in my own little world, then I'm making the world a better place. Well, you might be at a macro level, But that doesn't mean the macro is headed in the right direction, regardless of the ethics and morality and character that you exhibit. That doesn't mean that the system itself might lose integrity and break at one point. So the first journey is to just assess outside of your place in the world and where you sit, how you sit, how you matter, and get that wider perspective. And then there's another 50 after that, but let's start with that one. Right, right. First is ask the questions and begin the journey of understanding it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, Adam Smith, of course, in his book, The Wealth of Nations, advocates you know, very, very persuasively, as we've seen with the birth of our economic system, for the specialization of labor, this increasing output unit economics of a, a macroeconomic system, creating efficiencies and I've read Wealth of Nations. I read. I just finished The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which I absolutely loved, which he yeah. wrote before Wealth of Nations. 
And I think there's a discussion that needs to be had about system and systems intelligence. You talk about intellect, emotional intelligence, about applying systems intelligence to our financial sector. Mm-hmm. You look back on 08, 09, the Great Recession, you know, there's lots of different rhetoric that you'll hear about what caused the Great Recession. Some things that are not controversial that I've heard are A, it was largely caused by the financial sector, the greedy, hungry actions of a few, but B, also uninformed participants, people who were selling mortgage-backed securities, creating new products that were not aware of the entirety of the systemic risk it was posing or the number of other players engaging in this. So I think your point about there needing to be people who, who do zoom out, try to understand the system at a larger level is really, really important. The other thing that you often have talked about and you, you talk about in the book is character, which used to be a core screening mechanism right, for getting a loan, for being a participant in the financial system. You would literally have your character assessed by a local bank. And you see that as something that's been removed in favor of more quantitative, hard quantitative metrics. How do you think we can return humanity or character back into the financial system? And maybe one way or several ways, because I know that's also a question. Another question we could do four episodes on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the tough one. I think that's the big question we all face and the reason you and I do what we do, because there's really, I only see only one way to do it, because you can't go back. You can't go back to the world where every financial decision is based on George Bailey, it's for what of life, where George Bailey knows everybody on the street and then can decide whether to give them the home loan or not. I don't think we can go back to that. And there, there'd be too much cost to it as well. So the only way I think we can do it is to say, okay, the character assessment can only be done at the micro level, but it can only be done if the leadership at the top of the institution encourages that to be a part of the financial institution itself. So the only thing we can do is to create leaders, create enlightened leaders that say humanity, the aspect of it matters. And the products, the way they're constructed, the incentives around selling those products, what is the basis of each of those decisions, variables, whatever you want to call them? That's the only way. And so if as long as you have the people at the top setting the tone, and this doesn't mean People want to think of humanity as being kind or giving or taking over the less fortune. That's part of it. But humanity is also like, okay, why did we create this product? Is it consistent with the needs of our customers or not? What is the motivation to sell this product? Is the motivation encouraging behavior by our people to sell the product to the right people and in the right way that's in the best interest of our customers? There's so many aspects to it that can only come from the top. And as we've moved towards a world in the last 30 years of scale and scope, we've hired and put in place leaders that can create scale and create scope and breadth and globalization and all of that. And we've rewarded those leaders that can do that. And we've really given no thought, partially because it's really hard to measure, frankly, to trust and humanity and the like. But as we see the system breaking or cracking or there being issues, 
that's something that we have to now look to and start thinking about. I couldn't agree more. And you bringing up how difficult it is to measure character is something that we feel acutely at Scholars of Finance. You know, our mission is to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow and this next gen of college students who will be the investors, the heads of leveraged fin finance groups of investment banks, of VC and private equity firms, asset management, real estate firms, et cetera. And a lot of times people will say, well, how do you measure your impact? And my response is, well, when I can measure character change, we can stop being a nonprofit. I'm going to license that to every educational system, every church, <laughs> you know, every educational group and every leadership development group in the world and retire a billionaire and having made my impact on the world. I say that a bit flippantly to put the challenge in perspective and the great need for that in perspective, but not to abdicate, not to say that we won't try to figure that out. In fact, it's something that we're trying to figure out and we want to try to figure out as an organization. It's one of, personally, for me, my dreams. How do you actually quantify character? So it's not this ethereal thing that somebody in a 30-minute interview can feign and fake by saying the right things that they've rehearsed, but that you can actually see and there's accountability for. And I think this actually segues perfectly into a conversation about the Aspen Institute and your work there. You just mentioned enlightened leaders. You're on the board of the Aspen Institute, and you're a founder of the Finance Leaders Fellowship there. The website says that, quote, the Aspen Institute Finance Leaders Fellowship develops a community of enlightened leaders to chart the course of the global financial industry. Fellows strengthen their company's cultures, look for ways to improve system stability, and innovate to ensure global financial inclusion. As we've discussed, the alignment between the Finance Leaders Fellowship and SOF is uncanny. Our missions are almost identical, just serving different audiences. While we serve students, you're serving leaders who are currently already in a position of influence. Can you tell our listeners more about the program, the thesis, and why you started it? The Aspen Institute's been around for a while, and it's really been successful And I think, creating enlightened leaders, as we like to say. And it's a very unique process. I've never seen anything like it. It's very hard to describe. It's sort of a discussion, Socratic method, introspection process you do with 20 other leaders over many seminars a week at a time. And what my co-founder, Ranji Nagaswamy, and I said is, well, if ever an industry needed enlightened leadership, it was finance. So why don't we take the proven Aspen model and do it in the financial services industry? So now we've been at it for quite a few years now. And yeah, it's been a great personal Joy and I, and, I, and I have no doubt it's had an impact because I've seen what our fellows have gone off and done, how they've changed the way they walk in the world, both in the organizations they continue to be a part of, and frankly, in some cases, the new organizations that some of them have been inspired to create or to join. So I agree it's hard to measure, but it's not hard to see, if that makes sense, because we don't have KPIs typically for character. Right. I appreciate you beginning to unpack this. It's this Aspen method. We may have a lot of listeners who aren't familiar with the Aspen Institute. So can you walk us through, let's say, you know, I've applied to the Aspen Institute Finance Leaders Fellowship. I've been accepted. I'm about to begin. Can you sort of give us the play-by-play, -play, the step-by-step -step of what someone experiences going through this program? Really hard to do, I will say. It was described to me and as a philosophy major, I was like, oh, I get to read some great works from history and philosophy and 
wherever and then have a discussion around it go sign me up and then afterwards i was like wow like that's not what i expected it's very different but basically we'll do a reading which will prompt a discussion around an aspect of leadership and then you're forced to then ask that question of yourself and the others and determine why you did what you did and what you will do in the future for example George Orwell's Shooting an Elephant, which is only a six or seven page short story. It's super powerful about a policeman who's forced to shoot an elephant in Myanmar in the early 1900s, knowing it's the wrong thing to do, but because of peer pressure does it anyway. So we ask our fellows, where have you shot an elephant? And there's many examples. I mean, the list in finance is long. How many times have, you know, whether we're spinning IPO shares or selling mortgage-backed securities? How many times did you people know they were doing something wrong, but they're like, wow, the industry practice says it's okay and I should do it. And so it's like, well, I know I'm shooting an elephant. They wouldn't use this phrase, but I'm going to do it. And so, okay, how are you as a leader going to identify those moments? And you get what's interesting in, in the fellowship is you get people admitting and sharing the elephants that they've shot when they have never admitted it to anyone else. So the step one is, yes, we've all, we've all done it. You know, unfortunately, as humans, we have to touch the hot pot. If someone says, don't touch that hot stove, you don't go your whole life saying, well, you know, people have told me not to touch that hot stove, so I'm not going to touch it. No, you got to touch it once, and no, you don't touch it again. So we all overstep lines. That's how we know where the line is, right? We don't just accept lines. Right, particularly if you're an innovator and you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to grow something, you know the line is where it is because you cross over and you go like, "Oh, I crossed that line. I got to come back." And so, what we do through the fellowship is talk about those moments. This is just one example of it, not the whole thing, where you cross lines and then define the line. And for a lot of people, they've never even defined the line; they just sort of have felt their way. So, where is that line? How do you as a leader define the line, operate around the line, encourage others to operate around that line? And these conversations are very personal, they're very deep, they're very intense in a way that you don't see in most programs. Because most programs, you'll talk about emotion and you'll talk about how you got through it and the impact it had on you. But you don't fundamentally talk about the leadership values and challenges that helped you define your walk in the world. So as we bring each fellow in, there's really three parts to it. There's the first part is, how do we make you a better leader? How do we make you understand what makes you a great leader and for you to be a good leader? The second part is, okay, how do you impact the organizations which you're a part of? So when you go back, what are you going to do to change that organization to make it have a more enlightened leadership journey as an organization. And the third, which we're just starting to get to now, is how are we going to collectively impact the evolution of the financial services industry itself? It's really three parts to the journey as well. I hope that was helpful. You know, really, really hard to describe. It's a very unique but amazing process. There's very few times in my life where I get to sit in rooms and you can literally see light bulbs going off, almost like you know, cartoon like going off above their head. You can say that these people are never going to walk in the world in the same way. It is really helpful when you describe it. You saying it's so difficult to describe, 
I have had one other one experience that was similar to that. The Stanford Business School, the Graduate School of Business, they have this program, Interpersonal Dynamics, in the MBA program, and it's affectionately known as Touchy Feely, and it's like the most legendary course that Stanford right. I think has ever had. You've heard of it, like everyone's heard of this course. Well, it's a little known fact that publicly, 32 people per quarter, four times a year, can take Touchy Feely for like a five day weekend. And I found that out, and I enrolled in it. And similarly, like people are like, what's with this legendary class? What's it like? And I'm like, I honestly can't describe it to you. You sit in a circle for you know 12 people and you get very present and talk about your feelings, but it's not a therapy session. It's like T group is this entirely different experience that you can only really appreciate when you've had it. It's like when you're when before you've had your first kids and you're like, what's it when I'm in the state? What's it like having kids? Or what's it like when your first kid's born? People are like, I can't describe it to you until you've done it. It's that transformative and that foreign of an experience. It's that novel. And I got to say, you describing it in that way, it piques my interest. And I hope our listeners are eager to learn more about the Finance Leaders Fellowship. I want to ask another question. You're producing effective, enlightened leaders in the financial industry. How do you know when you've done it right? What are you know a few traits of an effective, enlightened leader that any of us listening could look out for and identify in the people around us? Yeah, you know, as part of the first seminar, we asked people to pick the five traits of an effective, enlightened leader. And so we put them in groups and we go, go pick the five. Basically, through the week, we mine the characteristics of great leaders. So we'll study all the, some great leadership models, everything from Gandhi to Martin Luther King to Jean Monnet, the father of the EU. And you realize there is no standard leadership style. And you realize there is no five. There is no answer to that. What you learn is, is what are the ones, almost back to what we were talking about, being a good deal maker, same thing with being a good leader. What's the leadership style that fits with you? Are you a Jean Monnet, which is more of a behind-the-scenes consensus builder? Or are you a Gandhi? I mean, very few of us are Gandhi, but are you a Gandhi, which is you know a much more compassionate, awareness-building making the others aware of their own lacking and issues and you know highlighting that. The list of five is different for everyone. So the question you have to ask is like, what are your five? I mean, it could be two, it could be 10, but whatever the number, what are they? So you know it when you see someone realize like, oh, okay, this is my leadership style and why. And this is how I am going to lead. And then they go do that. I'm not saying they're right all the time. But typically, if you have enough self-awareness, you know what type of leader you should at least gravitate to being. And then the second thing you see, the other evidence is, what are they doing action-wise? Have they changed what they do? Have they gone back and said, you know what, I'm not going to do it this way anymore. I'm going to do it this way. And then they actively make change, which is not sort of an obvious, typical, prosaic career changer from what's going to get me promoted. It's more like, okay, how am I impacting the world in terms of what we sell, how we sell it, whatever that may be. So you see it in awareness, and then you see it in action, frankly. That's how pretty straightforward, but that's how we see it. The biggest risk that we have at Aspen or any any organization has is that you build awareness and people just admire the problem. And they get really good at deconstructing. Oh, like I really understand the problem now. 
okay, great, we understand the problem more. What are you going to do? Like, what action are you going to take? So I think the other difference about Aspen is it's very focused on action. It's not enough to just be aware and look really smart because you've you've taken this messy situation and said, okay, I've deconstructed and I can now tell you what's wrong and why it's wrong. Great. What are you going to do about it? So we always end with a call to action. What are you going to do as a leader when you go back into the world to have impact? Awareness and action. People who are aware, who change their behavior and update their operating system, who actually take action based on what they've learned. It's funny, as you're sharing that, as you're saying, it depends on your style. I had two different thoughts hit me. One was I felt myself clinging to this notion that there is some set of leadership principles or values. At SOF, we teach six core values, among them integrity, compassion, humility, curiosity, courage. Um, Impact is the sixth. And so part of me was like, oh, but there must be some simple formula we can teach everyone. But then my follow-on thought as I was listening to you, just taking in what you're saying, was what you said earlier, you need a team of different people that have different strengths. Just like you said, my superpower is empathy and consensus building and awareness and relationships. Someone else's superpower might be hammering out the next steps and building the project plan and delegating all the different action items, right? Like you need different types of leaders on a team and different industries, different groups, different cultures require different leadership styles too. So I think it's actually part of me feels a little bit unsettled as I'm sure for our students listening, they might just want the answer. And even our investors who are 20 years into their investment career listening might just want the answer. But I think there's a beautiful answer, which is to look inside yourself, understand yourself, A. B, look at the world around you and understand the world around you. Understand the financial system in greater complexity at a system level. And when you know yourself and you understand the system, now you can actually determine what is the leadership style that will yield the most impact and best action for you. So I just want to say thank you for that. You've got me thinking and I'm excited for our dinner later tonight to unpack this in a lot of detail. I'm like, okay, Ross, just wait. You'll talk. You'll see him later. Ask more questions later. There's a few more topics we want to dive into for this podcast episode. And we only have about 10 minutes left. One last question on the fellowship. How do you think the fellowship may evolve in the next five or 10 years? How do you see it continuing to grow and change? Yeah, I really want us to focus on step three, which is how do we impact the evolution of the financial service and sort of bend the arc to make it more understandable, approachable, and making sure that it's a positive for creating what we call the good society. That's a very tough thing to do when it's so hard to build consensus. So I'm not even sure I can tell you what that path looks like, but I'm really looking forward to the journey of figuring out what that means. So rather than having this amorphous If you think about the financial service industry and how it's evolved, it's really been very organic and gone in its own path. And so what's the process for making sure that path has a little more humanity, thoughtfulness around it and whatever. So the real, I think we've gotten the first two down. I feel like we've done it thanks to the long history of the Aspen Institute. Ranji and I and the team haven't messed it up. We've actually transplanted a a great process onto a specific program. And so I think that's the real interesting and needed part of it. And there'll probably be a crisis, a financial crisis in there as well. So what role we play in 
helping to navigate that will also be interesting as well. I'm excited to see. And I think we're in a, a state where the financial system is going to evolve dramatically and rapidly in, the, in our current lifetime. From China rising as a world superpower, you and I were talking about Ray Dalio's recent book, Principles for the Changing World Order. When you look at some of the charts and the graphs and historical data, it's really interesting to see how the world, to think about how the world order is going to change with China's rise, Mm -hmm. number one. And number two, we had Chris Larson, the co-founder of Ripple and sort of one of the founding fathers, I think, of the cryptocurrency movement today. And you see the decentralization of finance playing a pretty major role in its evolution too. So I'm excited to see how the finance leaders, the fellows coming out of the program each year, think about tackling some of the, the systemic change. And that actually segues into one of the last topics I wanted to touch on with you. And then I want to hit you with some rapid fire questions after this. It's just the macro environment that you're seeing. It's wonderful to hear your perspective on how the Finance Leaders Fellowship will change investors. But you're an investor too. And we have many investors who listen to this podcast current and future investors. So I'd love to segue into how you're thinking about the world around us in these uncertain times. At a high level, what's your take on the macroeconomic environment? And what's your take on the socio-political environment, what that means for your investments? Yeah, if the world were simply figuring out how to back and invest great technologies and help them grow, it would be, you know, it would be pretty easy. Then it would just be about an allocation of capital to the best ideas or funding great ideas, knowing that you know, there's not a smooth line, but over time, the path of technology is up and to the right, and it's pretty steep. But then you overlay a macro and the political filter on top of that, and it makes things extremely complicated. And right now, we're dealing with the unwinding, and it might be a little unwind, it might be a big unwind, we don't know, or it might just be not even unwind, but a volatile moment of a macro and political strategy that is starting to be challenged. And so... Low interest rates, and you know, I could go on and on, but all the policies that have really been pursued over the past few decades, as we've realized the power and the benefit and the, the availability of those strategies, it's really fed into, in my world of technology, it's really fed into the financing of ideas. So the good news is, if you have an idea, you can probably get funded. So we funded more ideas you know in the last 20 years than we have probably in the history of the world put together so when money is so cheap innovators get to go off and do their thing the challenge is it has come with a cost which these i will say not free market but driven policies have led to the encouragement of excesses that then we'll have to correct and so the part we're dealing with now, just in the past few months, is we see things going from very highly valued to less valued, but still very highly valued. And so right now we're going through the give back or the, let's say, the letting off of the steam of, I don't want to call it a bubble, but whatever word you wanted to describe it, you know, whether it was a bubble or not, frankly, is a historical concept, not a perspective concept even though you feel like you can predict that. So we're in the world right now of, I I call it the, you know, we've all been there on the freeway, we're going too fast, and but we're very comfortable. And then we see a police officer and we take our foot off the gas and we slow down to the speed limit. 
and we're driving the speed limit and we're like, whoa, it feels so slow. But you're still going 65 miles an hour. So the valuations now are still very attractive. They're just not what they were. And then now we're grappling with the, okay, how much further are they going to correct or go? And that's really impossible to predict. And we're all a little worried that did the party go on too long and are we creating systemic risk here? There's plenty of books out there and commercials about how the system is going to break, how the dollar is going to lose its reserve currency, how foreign demand for our, and I'm talking from a U.S.-centric perspective here, of course, how the demand for U.S. treasuries will dissipate or or the like, or we're safe because we're the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry and every currency is doing the same thing. And so therefore we don't have to worry. So I'm fascinated to see where the next 30 years goes. I feel very fortunate to have a good seat, hopefully live long enough to see where this goes. Because I think there's a lot of uncertainty here. You know, we're definitely in for all of Ray Dalio's recounting of the past, the fall of empires. We're in unique, unprecedented territory here in many, many ways. So it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. But from as an investor, I guess to answer your question directly, there's a short, a medium, and a long-term view. The short term is going to be volatile because there's too many forces at work. The medium term is going to be very much impacted by political and macro policies. And then the long term if you look at any chart of technology or anything, if you step back far enough, it's up and to the right. So I'm still bullish on technology and other particular sectors. But when you zoom into that chart, it can look really jagged. So that doesn't mean that we're not going to see some real volatility over the coming years. But long term, unless the and I'm just using this time return, I get this question more and more about the financial system, unless the system breaks. And no one really knows what that means. But unless the system breaks, which the prevalence of that question has never been more pronounced than recently, but if you know it breaks, you know we're going to continue on. So, like anything, whether as a leader, as an investor, as a relationship, it's all about time horizon. The long-term horizon is always the one that leads to the most sound decisions. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. I want to say a very wise answer, but I'm too young to truly know if it's wise or not. But when it makes me think, I assume there's wisdom in it because there's clearly experience and knowledge that I have not gleaned yet or grasped yet driving that answer. I would just say, yes, I always say you'll go through four crises in your life. The first one, you survive it. The second one, you convince yourself, well, this is an opportunity, but you just don't have the experience or guts to hang in there. So you sort of short arm it and you go in, but not deep. The third one, is the one where you go in deep and that's where you like make your money and make your reputation and get promoted. And then the fourth one defines who you are, which is like, okay, I'm in a crisis. Is it about me making money and advancing myself or is it me about figuring out what this means to the world and what's my impact and making sure that the world either survives this crisis or evolves in the right way? I love it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you sharing. I want to hit you with two rapid fire questions because we're coming up okay. on time. First, in like less than 60 seconds, what was your favorite story from your book 
or the, the story that you hope people pay attention or look out for when they're reading the book? Yeah, well, the story about lending money to diamond dealers and gold wholesalers is probably people's favorite and will always be my favorite because that's the one where you realize like the five C's of credit, none of them matter but character. And it really drives home that fact in a way that I think very few stories do. Last rapid fire question. We're always learning here at Scholars of Finance. You know, we've talked about how the mission of Scholars of Finance and the Finance Leaders Fellowship are so similar. And you've mentioned several times in this discussion that, you know, you and I are doing the same work, right? The people listening to this, all of us are doing the same work together. I want to ask you, what about Scholars of Finance made it stand out to you as an organization and made you want to get involved, whether it's the alignment or anything in addition to the alignment with all the requests for your time? Why Scholars of Finance? Well, I think at its base, you're getting to people early and you're getting to a wider group, which is very key. Why should we wait till people are super successful and have already had an impact and then start the question and the journey then? It's, not, it's never too late. And by the way, you know, okay, sure, we're taking people with power and so therefore the impact is high. But in order for this to really work and be effective, why not start the journey of what an enlightened leader is much earlier in life? And so to me, it's very complimentary. And so therefore, it makes total sense that we're partnered in this journey. I can't wait for the day when we have a formal partnership between the organizations and our scholars of finance grads. You know, they get the first look during the application right. process for the Finance Leaders Fellowship 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, or that, or, or we bring Aspen to them in some way, right? So That too. That too. I think we're going to have some very interesting conversations over dinner this evening. Chris, want to thank you for your time today. So grateful for you coming on the podcast, sharing all of your wisdom and insights with our, our audience, our students, our investors. And cannot wait to have you on again. Hope you have an amazing day and, and just want to say thanks again, Chris. No, it's a real honor to be on. Thank you. Great job and see you later. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.